And we come to Nahum chapter 2, as Ben read for us a moment ago. And what a amazing book this is. It's a, a stern book in some regards. It's a serious book. It's a book with a lot of weight to it because it deals with judgment. And we see from the front of our bulletin today that we've titled this sermon, Judgment Comes to Nineveh, because that's really the story of Nahum. This city that had so long before received, if you will, the mercy and forbearance of God, now receives the judgment that it's long been due. Not one moment late, not one moment early, but in the fullness of time, God brings judgment to Nineveh. This is roughly 120 years after Jonah prophesied to the city. God calls Nahum, another prophet. This is about 80 years after Assyria has conquered the northern kingdom in 722. This prophet comes and speaks a message that's really both for Judah, the southern kingdom, and for Nineveh. Judah as a word of comfort, and I think that's the primary audience. This is spoken to Judah about what will happen to Nineveh and to Assyria. Because again, remember, Nahum's name means comfort. This is not a message of comfort to Assyria. This is not a message of comfort to Nineveh or its king. This is a letter and a message of comfort to the people of God that, yes, their enemies will fall under judgment. Now, it is a message of doom. We need to recognize that. But it's good news. It's good news. And this letter tells us this over and over again. Most vividly at the, in the language that ended the first chapter, which we looked at at the end of last week, we'll come back to it again today. But we need to think about it. Because as you come to the end of the first chapter, there is language that's familiar to us, both from the Old Testament and New. Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. Now, we know not only does Isaiah quote that in an earlier age in reference to Babylon, but also the New Testament quotes this. Paul quotes this, speaking of the gospel and the message of the gospel that comes. And we need to recognize in this a couple of things. That first of all, good news is delivered to us by the grace of God. And second of all, that it comes always in the defeat of some force of evil. If the people are going to be freed from Babylon, Babylon must be overthrown. If the people are going to be freed from Assyria, Assyria will be overthrown. If we're going to be freed from the tyranny, if you will, of sin and death, sin and death themselves must be overthrown. This is a picture we get throughout the scriptures if we're paying attention. At the heart of the prophecies of Daniel in his book are what? The kingdoms of the world that seem so mighty and unopposable in their day. Babylon seems unassailable. The Medes and the Persians can't be defeated. Right? Greece, how could anybody stand against Greece? And what of Rome? And yet these kingdoms, one by one, shall be shattered and decimated. And in fact, that picture is of a mighty stone, not hewn by hand, right? not cut by man, that comes and flies into that and just obliterates it. Right? Makes it into the dust that flies around the earth. The picture here is of the kingdom of God advancing and destroying, if you will, the kingdoms of the world. So we should never miss this point throughout Scripture that the victory of the people of God is accompanied by the defeat of the enemies of God over and over and over again. If we don't feel that tension, it's because we feel kind of at peace in our lives. The people of God in the days of Nahum did not feel at peace. They didn't feel safe. They felt at threat every moment. Violence could fall upon them 
at any moment. These were people that thought, if only God would free us from our enemies. The people who mock God, who make a mockery of God, who stand in defiance of God. If only God would rescue us from our oppressors. Well, the message of the Bible is the message of rescue from oppression, ultimately. Not to put this in political terms, we're not speaking politically, we're speaking theologically here. The oppression of sin and death is what God sent Christ into the world to defeat, that we might have life with Christ, reconciliation to the Father. And so all of this is a biblical message. And if you don't understand how Nahum's speaking of this messenger of peace that's coming over the mountains and bringing good news of victory, then you'll miss not only the entire message of Nahum and much of the Old Testament, but the entire theology of the Bible. There is a victory depicted in Scripture. I remember Miss Wanda Duggar used to always talk about some gospel song. I've still never heard it, but I remember it was something like, I look in the back of the book and we win, you know. And, and that's the message of the Bible. In the end, the Lord's people will win because the victory is secured not by us, but by our King. And so my friends, Nahum is giving us a picture of that even here. So as we come to today's text, let's read it again quickly, and then we will, we'll move on. Before we do, let me mention one thing I didn't get to last week at the end of Chapter 1, right after the part about the messenger of peace. When he speaks of not being troubled again, that they'll be utterly cut off, he speaks of the wicked one or the Belial, the worthless one. Again, the idea of the king of Assyria, but that's language in the New Testament for Satan himself. So again, you get the idea here of, of not only the work of satanic power and influence in the world, but his antichrists, right, that rise up throughout time and are dealt with by God. So again, keep that in mind as we speak about this. This is not an innocent victim here. Assyria is an evil empire that must be brought down before a holy and living God. We come to chapter 2 now. He who scatters has come up before your face. Man the fort. Watch the road. Strengthen your flanks. Fortify your power mightily. For the Lord, the Lord will restore the excellence of Jacob like the excellence of Israel. For the emptiers have emptied them out and ruined their vine branches. The shields of his mighty men are made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. The chariots come with flaming torches in the day of his preparation. And the spears are brandished. The chariots rage in the streets. They jostle one another in the broad roads. They seem like torches. They run like lightning. He remembers his nobles. They stumble in their walk. They make haste to her walls, and the defense is prepared. The gates of the river are opened, and the palace is dissolved. It is decreed, she shall be led away captive. She shall be brought up, and her maidservants shall lead her, as with the voice of doves beating their breasts. Though Nineveh of old was like a pool of water, now they flee away. Halt, halt, they cry, but no one turns back. Take spoil of silver. Take spoil of gold. There is no end of treasure or wealth of every desirable prize. She is empty, desolate, and waste. The heart melts and the knees shake. Much pain is in every side, and all their faces are drained of color. Where is the dwelling of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions, where the lions walked and the lioness and lion cubs, and no one made them afraid? The lion tore in pieces enough for his cubs, killed for his lionesses, filled his caves with prey and his dens with flesh. 
Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall be heard no more. My friends, this is a word of judgment passed through God's prophet by God himself. It is a serious message, and we need to heed what's said here. In looking at this text, I want us to look at three points. First of all, judgment approaches the city. Second of all, Nineveh prepares its defenses. And third, devastation falls upon Nineveh. There's a bit of a prophetic word given of what will happen to Nineveh, and then we hear, if you will, almost as if in real time, although prophesied decades earlier, what will become of Nineveh. So last Sunday we saw that God was bringing judgment against Assyria and particularly against Nineveh, that he's moving toward the city, that he's marching to bring wrath. And the Bible gives us that kind of language. We see it again in the very first verse here, that the scatterer is coming. Now scholars debate, is the scatterer used to speak of the human agent of God's wrath, meaning the Babylonian army in this case? Don't forget, God is using the Babylonian army as he will against his own people, Judah, in uh, not so far out in the future from where this stands. But is it referring to the human leader, if you will, the opposition to Assyria or to God himself? I think for one thing, it misses the entire point of chapter 1 to ask that question. Everything that happens here, God says, is at my hand. What Assyria uh, finds coming upon it is sent by God himself. If Babylon is the agent that does it, that's fine, but God is the one who's bringing this judgment against Nineveh. So again, in one sense, it is God who's bringing this devastation. It is God who is in the role of the scatterer. But if we were to understand the Hebrew Bible, I think we would see another clue here that tells us it's clearly speaking of God as the scatterer, the one who will take Nineveh, this great unified and solid city, and blow it apart like the wind. So I hit my mic, sorry. Uh, one clue there is Daniel, right? The picture of Daniel is of a God who will shatter the kingdoms of the world and blow them to the wind. So that is the picture of the scatterer. But also, Genesis could really begin about chapter 9, but, but through chapter 11, we read the story of human rebellion against God. In the days of Noah's descendants, God tells them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And we read of mighty men like Nimrod in that day and a generation who says, no, we're not going to do that. God has given us a command. We're not going to do it. We're going to instead build one great city. I believe the 10th chapter there tells us that one of the cities that began in that age was Nineveh, that great city. And so they said, we will build cities and we will bind ourselves together and we will refuse to go out and scatter to the ends of the earth. And that finds its culmination in the Tower of Babel, doesn't it? Where they say, we will build a tower that will reach to the heavens. We will stay in this one spot and we will not be, if you will, forced to go out and and fill the, the earth. And God says, okay, let's see how well that works. And God comes in judgment against this tower and against this city and against this people. And he does what? He confuses their language so that they cannot communicate any longer. At least not well. Groups might be able to communicate, but as a whole, they can't communicate. And he does what? He scatters them into the world. He drives them into the world so that Babel 
right? We know about where Babel was. Some people say, well, it may have been what later became uh, Babylon proper or the city of Babylon. But whatever the case is, as a community at that time, it was scattered to the, to the winds. And in, uh, one Hebrew scholar says it's the exact same root word that's used here. The scatterer is the one who takes and disperses to the ends of the earth. In this case, it's not to fill the earth, but to do what? Destroy Assyria. To take what was once a people and make it no longer a people. To take a group that once stood defiantly against God and to scatter them and destroy them so that they will not rise again. It's one of the things we need to remember that God succeeded in this. We shouldn't be surprised God succeeds at whatever He decides to do. But what He does here is this. He destroys Nineveh. He destroys Assyria. Nineveh, any trace of it disappeared from the face of the earth until, as we said last week, about 100 years ago, a little over 100 years ago. So again, this is what God wills to do. And so as we look at this, we see that it will be scattered to the ends of the earth. God is coming against Assyria. And all the language of chapter 1 points to that. He marches triumphantly in wrath against this enemy. The picture of going out to war as an army does, God walks toward Nineveh. What happens? The features of the earth tremble and shake in His presence. And the mountains remove themselves from His pathway that He might walk straight to Assyria. Now He's doing this obviously in the, if you will, uh, in the working of calling Babylon to come and destroy this great city. But as we look at this, We recognize some important things because he says he has a purpose in doing this. Look at verse 2. For the Lord will restore the excellence of Jacob. God hasn't forgotten his promise to, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. He's not forgotten his promise to Daniel, excuse me, to, uh, to David, to King David. He hasn't forgotten these covenantal promises that he's made. They've not been lost on him. He is faithful to them and he will keep them. And though Jacob has been knocked down for a time, No question about it. Assyria has been God's tool to knock down in this age uh, the kingdom of Judah and before it the northern kingdom of Israel. He says he hasn't forgotten his promises and he will restore the excellency of Jacob. But notice one of the things he's restoring is what's been taken from them. For the emptiers, this is a reference to Assyria and the way they waged war, they have emptied them out. They have robbed them dry. The way Assyria worked was much like Babylon worked. We know what Babylon does when it conquers the southern city. It carries even the wares of the temple to Babylon, doesn't it? This is what they did. They learned from the best. They learned from Assyria. If you conquer a city, take all of its wealth. Take its beautiful women to be your brides. Take its smartest men to be your servants. Let them serve you. And take all of their wealth. Leave them nothing. This is what you do. And this is what they had done to Israel, and they're threatening to do to Judah. And God says, those who have emptied out Israel shall themselves be emptied out. You see what you sow, you reap what you sow. And this is what we're being taught here. So there is vivid language given to us in this text about the army coming over the horizon, if you will, coming at a distance from the city of Nineveh. Now this is something that is kind of lost on us today. Because we wage war in a completely different way. We have planes that fly over and drop bombs. We fire missiles from planes and from missile launchers on the ground. And then eventually a limited number comparatively of troops will come across a border and take a a target and then move to another one. 
That's very different from how war was waged in this day, where tremendous armies would be raised and would just walk and ride to their destination. And you'd be in a city, and if you had not received word of the coming invasion, you'd one day be looking out over the walls of the city, and you'd just see a horde of people in the distance. At first, just like black over the horizon, some kind of color over the horizon, you would begin to see something like ants in the distance coming over the horizon until you realized this was a tremendous army. Some of these armies were so big that it's reported in the ancient world the first sign that they appeared was the rumbling of the ground. Now think about when you talk about a million troops walking, horses, in the ancient world elephants, right? Different animals and beasts of war coming against you. And it would come at night and you wouldn't see them approach and you'd hear the rumble of the ground of these enormous armies advancing. It was enough to strike fear in the hearts of anybody in those days. This is something that we really don't experience in the same way, although I'm sure people in war-torn regions experience terror. It's just a different form of terror. If you're in the middle of a war zone today, maybe somewhere like the Ukraine, you're not exactly worried about maybe a million people coming over the horizon of your town, but you are worried, will a missile hit your house? Will a tank shell hit your house? These are the sorts of things you fear today, but in those days, to look out and see an army advancing was a sight of terror. It's a terror Assyria has never really dealt with. They've had some smaller armies come against them that they easily handled. But this is the first army that's a threat to them. Now, do they realize it at first? I think the Bible tells us that they do because, again, there are these words here to tell us of the seriousness of this army that's advancing, this Babylonian army. It says, the shields of his mighty men are made red. Now, this does not mean that the army took dye and painted their shields red. It means they're stained with blood. Remember, when you came to the main city, you passed through other lesser cities, right? You went through cities that didn't have great walls, maybe had no walls at all. And what it's telling us is the the Babylonians have already wiped those cities out. Blood is everywhere upon them. They are covered in blood. From a distance, you see red coming over the horizon because you see the blood-stained shields of the soldiers advancing. This tells you they've had success. Many have been slaughtered, and they're coming to make an end of you. It says, the chariots come with flaming torches. They're prepared to battle day and night. Their spears are brandished. These are cypress spears in the original text. Cypress spears, light and strong. Weapons of war. You see them at a distance and you know they're coming seriously. But all this happens in God's timing. It never divorces that uh, from, from this text. It says here that they come in the day of His preparation. It's God that's prepared the day of judgment here for the people of Nineveh. And notice it says the chariots rage in the streets and jostle one another in the broad roads. There's debate if this means after they've already entered the city or if they're in the streets, if you will, outside the walls of the city. But they're everywhere. And they are speeding along to and fro on every side to where you know you're cut off and surrounded by a large army with many chariots. And it speaks of the chariots that they are like torches. These are metal chariots in the Middle Eastern sun. As the sun hits that brass and metal, it gleams like torches, blindingly. As you look out, you see the the blinding lights of chariots everywhere and soldiers everywhere. A serious enemy has come, and they look as if they run like lightning bolts. 
They're fast. They're swift. This is biblical imagery for an effective enemy, an effective army that's come against you. They're fast. They're strong. They're mighty. They're numerous. This is serious danger. Now, as you think about all this, for the first time, they are threatened. Assyria, for the first time, is truly threatened. Now, I think they think we can survive this thing. We've got a lot of advantages. We've got a well-trained military. We've got leaders and officers who have been through many battles before. We have much to have confidence in. We've got the greatest walls in existence today. Mighty walls. Thick walls. We've got forts on those walls. In addition to that, we've got the Tigris River that is a natural boundary and defense for us. So before we get too shaken, let's remember what we have. We've got lots of military skill. We are ready for this battle. In fact, that brings us to our second point, because Nineveh prepares for the battle. Now there's the the mocking charge at the beginning of the text, back in verse 1. Man the fort. (laughs) Make sure you've got your men in place. That's what you want to do if you've got a defensive boundary. If you've got a, a military base, you want to make sure that it's manned. Has Not much point in having towers if nobody's watching them. But the Bible also reminds us that unless the Lord guards a city, the night watchman stays awake in vain. So again, the reality here is they need to man the walls and prepare the defenses, but if God is against them, it will avail absolutely nothing for them. What else are they to do? Watch the roads. Someone's got to be scouting and watching to make sure if an army approaches... It's alarmed immediately so that you have maximum time to defend yourself. One of the problems that seems implied in the text here in the Hebrew is that they, got, they were late to their defenses. They didn't get word early enough. It wouldn't have mattered, but that's just how God sovereignly chose to work. This fell upon them by surprise. On top of that, they're to strengthen their flanks, make it to where the enemy can't encircle them, although this enemy will encircle them. And fortify your power mightily. It's almost mocking, I think. Here's what you need to do. Prepare for this invasion. Prepare your defenses. Do your best. And watch God still bring you low. So the king of Nineveh knows this. He's concerned. He knows they need to fortify themselves against this attack. But then something happens in verse 5, which is remarkable. It says... He remembers his nobles or noble ones. These are men of uh, valiancy. These are valiant men, men of warfare, men who are officers trained in past battles. These are men who are trustworthy. They've been with the king of Nineveh. He knows them. If you study military history, you know there are those generals and military officers that were trusted, right? You can look in American history and think about some men like that. You can look in whatever military you want to. There are famous generals uh, that were trusted by their leaders. These are these men for the king of Nineveh. He says, I've got these men and I will remember them and I will bring them. But notice even these great men will not have, have no power to save. Right off the bat it says they stumble in their walk. These powerful men, they trip and fall as they walk to their points of defending and organizing the city. But they do make haste to the walls. They prepare the defense But this is another place where the Hebrew seems to say that the siege coverings are already set. In other words, they're too late. Already the engines of warfare are raised against them. The the towers of siegery are already built. 
And only now does he remember. Call the noble ones, organize the defense, get ready. Maybe much like what we read about in the book of Daniel. Right? With the, the prophecy, the handwriting on the wall, you have been weighed and found wanting. Maybe they thought they were safe and didn't need to raise a defense. They thought, oh, here's just another army. We can party all night long. We've got these walls to defend us. After all, they still have those things. Trained military officers, natural defensive line with the Tigris, and great mighty walls of defense. But the question for us is, will this city stand? I think if we know our Bible, even prior to reading Nahum, we know what the answer is. If God wills to bring a city down, he will bring the city down. Are the walls of Nineveh greater than the walls of Jericho? God brought those walls down. Walls that seemed unable to be uh, brought down, God brought them down in an amazing way. And so we come here to our third and final point because devastation falls upon Nineveh. Judgment and devastation falls upon it. In fact, it doesn't leave us to ponder what will happen, nor even whom to attribute the victory to. makes it clear every step of the way. God is at work. God is the one who does this. The king of Nineveh, Nineveh places his trust against God in earthly things. Walls, soldiers, commanders, a river, mighty men of valor proven in warfare. But we see in verse 6, all this is undone immediately. Look at what it says. The gates of the rivers are opened. Now again, because this is Hebrew poetry, sometimes the language isn't set out as well as we would desire it to, so the language can be a little bit tricky. Does it mean the sluices of the gates of the river were opened by the enemy and allowing the city to flood? Or does he just mean like the, you'd say, the windows of heaven opened and the rain came down? Does he just mean that the gates of the river just started opening up and water started flowing? Either way, what it's picturing is the Tigris River flooded. Now, this was pretty rare to happen. That's why they built their city right on the Tigris River. It was a source of blessing and of water and of life to them. It was not a danger to them most of the time. In fact, it was a natural protection for them. And yet here we see the Tigris River begins to flow and begins to be an instrument of destruction. Diodorus Seculus, a a, a secular historian, a Greek historian, uh, once wrote about the history of the fall of Nineveh. And he said that a mighty rain came, not even right at Nineveh, upstream from Nineveh, if you will, upriver from Nineveh and caused the river to swell in such a mighty way that it flooded the city. It flooded the city so greatly, he says, that it ended up going into the lower portion of the city, causing the foundation of the lower city to fail, including 20 stadia of its great wall. About two miles of the wall of Nineveh collapsed. Now, I guess it's just a huge coincidence that the Babylonian army happened to come there just in that moment that this happens. But the wall falls. In fact, if you read the language here, it says not only does the, uh, the river uh, swell and the, the gates of the river open, but it says the palace is dissolved. It's getting at here. Much of the structures inside the city are washed away, dissolved. You think about the picture of dissolving. It's like the water comes and it just falls apart, right? Buildings were just washed away. Even in our own age where you see uh, buildings made of, of wood, right, on a foundation, a river can wash them away. But you can imagine uh, buildings made of, of mud and so forth like that would just literally dissolve and disintegrate under a great river. And that's what happens here. 
So an opening is made, and you can almost imagine the armies of Babylon just pouring through the gap that's now made in the wall. Isn't it exactly how God works that one of its greatest defenses becomes its downfall? God works this way over and over again. The thing that you trust in, if it isn't Him, is used to be your undoing. We can think about this in many of the Old Testament prophets' work. You can think about many examples. I don't have time to get into them today, but just go back and read some of those prophecies like Obadiah and see what happens. It's amazing. So again, the city is undone, the wall falls, and now they enter in. And the Lord gives an oracle, doesn't he, here, to his prophet. He says, it is decreed. Now, if God decrees something, that means it's going to happen, doesn't it? If God decrees it, it will come to pass. And remember, this is decades before these things will come to pass, that this is being decreed. But it says this, It is decreed, verse 7, She shall be led away captive. She shall be brought up. Now that may not be as significant to us, but if you had lived in the age of Assyrian rule, what you saw was nation after nation, city after city, conquered and the people led away. It's what happened in the northern kingdom of Israel, isn't it? The Assyrians came in, they took some of the Israelites out, they brought Assyrians in to settle, they intermarried, and now you had the Samaritans. This is how they destroyed cultures. This is what the Assyrians had long done. The one who had carried away in the past now will themselves be carried away. And notice the rest about the maidservants beating their breasts, the ones that had caused terror for others and lamentations for others will now themselves be the ones to cry out in lamentation. This is, again, reaping what you sow. Notice in verse 8 he goes on to say, Though Nineveh of old was like a pool of water. What is a pool of water in a hot ancient Near East? It's a pool of life. It's a source of refreshment and life and and thriving. Cities in those days were built near sources of water, weren't they? He says, though Nineveh of old was like a pool of water, a place of peace and refreshment and strength and comfort. Now what do they do? They flee away. Before we wanted to gather here on the banks of the Tigris River. Now we only want to flee for our very lives. How bad is it? These brave officers cry out, Halt! Halt! Meaning what? Stop running back. Turn and stand firm in the day of battle. No one even so much, the scriptures say, has turned their head backwards. They don't stop and come back. They don't stop. They barely look back at all. They're booking it as far away from the enemy as they can. The city has fallen. All is lost. The end is nigh for them. They know this. It is now every man save himself. And look at what the word says. Take spoil of silver. Take spoil of gold. This is an amazing section of Hebrew poetry. When I said to you last week, some people say the last great work of Hebrew Hebrew poetry in the Old Testament. It's one of the great works of Hebrew poetry. In fact, in the Hebrew, one of the jobs that's difficult in translation is keeping sometimes the cadence of the original language, right, in the translation. It's almost impossible to do. But in this section, it's cadenced in the Hebrew to sound like a march of an army, like the midst of warfare going on. 
Take spoil of silver, spoil of gold, no end of treasure, of wealth of every desirable prize. It's very cadence-heavy and, and drives this idea of rhythm and destruction. Notice the one who had spoiled all the other nations of the Middle East now themselves are being spoiled. Those who stole and got great wealth at the hands of all the people they had conquered now find themselves having all of their uh, gold and treasure taken. And then it says that she will be empty and desolate and waste. You know, this is language used in the Bible, right, for being left desolate. It's used in the Bible of, of Judah when uh, Judah's children are carried off into Babylon, right? She is left as if childless, barren, uh, wasted, if you will, desolate and empty. Well, who's been desolating in the days prior to Babylon? It's the Assyrians. They have come in and carried off nation after nation's treasure, nation after nation's children, nation after nation's women, nation after nation's brightest minds. And now God says, now it's going to happen to you. You will be left empty. You will be left desolate. You will be a waste. And notice these mighty soldiers that had inflicted terror upon every nation that they came in contact with. I would ask you just simply refresh your memory from Jonah. I think it was week one of Jonah. And the terror that the Assyrians had waged against all the nations of the world. I mentioned then, as I'll mention now, I would hardly talk about the things that they did because we have children in the room. But if they came to your gates and said surrender and you didn't, they were going to make an example of you to every other city they came to. They were brutal. Everyone hated them. Even their own allies were allies with them because they feared them. So again, now, these mighty men of valor who had no problem killing women and children, now look at what it says of them. Hearts melt, knees shake, much pain in every side, and all their faces are drained of color. It's an interesting wording in the Hebrew again. It says their, their faces were white as if bright light. And people think, oh, is it talking about glory? He's making the point they're like white sheets. They are completely pale in the horror that is falling upon them. Now, my friends, in reading this, it would be very easy to have sympathy in this moment for Nineveh and for the Assyrians if you didn't realize they had been doing this for hundreds of years to everyone else, it never bothered them. They knew they were doing these things. They thrived on it. They looked at it as a way of building their own nation by devastating other peoples. And now God says, what you have done now will be done unto you. I want to look at this last section really quick. We will be quick here. Because God comes in in a mocking way now and says, where is the dwelling of the lions? Where is the feeding place of the young lions? There's a said oftentimes our entire culture for the last hundreds of years has been based on uh, having some sort of literacy of the scriptures. There's a famous book called The Young Lions based on this word. So many things, books are giving you a shorthand as to what they're about. East of Eden, we can point to many examples of this, of books that are making references to scriptures to tell you what the theme of the book is going to be. Well, in this case, he says, where is the dwelling of the lions? The kings of Syria called themselves lions. They, lions. they carved themselves as oftentimes heads of men on bodies of lions. They compared themselves often in their annals to being like lions devouring nations and devouring men. Not hard to figure out why. The lion is the king of the jungle, we say, right? 
even though you rarely find them in jungles, they usually live in a different environment, but they are kings. Right? Lions are at the top of the food chain. They devour and they destroy. And he gives a, a, a picture here of something that we need to draw analogy to here. He says there's a feeding place of the young lions. Where does the lion feed his cubs? It's in his den, right? The place where he finds comfort and rest. And notice he says where the lion walked and the lioness and the lion's cub. And no one made them afraid. A lion doesn't feel afraid in his den. It's a place of comfort. But God is going to make it such that this place of comfort becomes the place of doom. The very place they feel most comfortable and most safe will now be the place of their destruction. You might think very much, as David said, of a table becoming a snare. Let their table become the snare. The place where they find comfort, just sitting around the table, eating a meal, becomes their undoing. And so it is here. This den, this place of comfort where they are never afraid. And notice in the picture, verse 12, he says, where the lion has torn pieces of meat. What's the idea here? The lion kills whatever animal you want to picture. A zebra tears its flesh apart for its cubs to eat. Now, it's a little bit of a a not perfect metaphor in the sense that it's getting an idea of being able to just hold this meat and store up this meat, which of course it would go rancid. But but the point here is this is what Assyria has done as the king lion gone out into all the nations and torn the other nations and ripped them apart and taken its flesh back and stored it up in heaping amounts in its den. Very vivid and graphic picture, isn't it? But just imagine all this meat laying around. What does this represent? Treasures. The riches of the world that Assyria has plundered and brought into its den. Gorging on its neighbors. And what does God say about this? He says, Behold, I am against you. My friends, if there are more frightening words in existence, I don't know what they are, than the Lord of hosts to say, I am against you, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of all the armies, the angelic armies that exist. The Lord of hosts says, I am against you. Behold this. Remember that word, behold. Take note of, recognize, see this. Don't miss this. I am against you. To whom will you turn? To whom will the Assyrians turn? No wall will avail. No river will stop God. No army will stop God. If God is bringing judgment, you shall fall. And he words it in shorthand. I will burn your chariots in smoke. Imagine the idea of metal chariots on fire. This is a a graphic image of something God would do, not man. And the sword shall devour your young lions. What does he mean here? There's an end to the kings of Assyria. There's no more to rise up at a later day. When Nineveh falls, there will be no more kings. If you know your history, Nineveh falls. They try to establish a little further in country, a new capital. It's conquered within a few years, and Assyria is done. The very thing God promised. There will be no future kings of Assyria. The line ends here. I will cut off your prey from the earth. And the voice of your messenger shall be heard no more. I want you to think just for a moment about this as we close. That message of uh, your messenger shall be heard no more seems like a little add-on at the end that doesn't really matter. It's incredibly important. The voice of Assyria will go out. 
no one will hear from Assyria any longer. This is the nation that for a few hundred years has sent its messengers out with ultimatums. We want you to double your tribute to us this year or we will destroy you. You must give us twice the harvest you gave us last year or we will destroy you. Nations starve to death because of the toll Assyria placed on their neighbors. And you know how we'll wipe you out. It'll be in a way so despicable. You'll do whatever it takes to avoid it. In an earlier time, a messenger, an emissary of the Assyrian king, Rabshekah, came and spoke to Hezekiah and mocked God, blasphemed God before. It's kind of a notable picture of an enemy of God coming as a messenger of a king that's an enemy of God. What he's saying is there's no more Rabshakeh. They're all done away with. They're all done in. Assyria will fall. Assyria will be judged. Now there will be one more messenger come one day in a few decades' time. But this will not be a messenger of terror. This will be the messenger we read about at the end of chapter 1. A messenger of good tidings. A messenger of peace. And when he comes, he says, the long Assyrian nightmare is over, right? The long terror of Assyria is done. God has judged them and found them wanting, and he has destroyed them. Never to rise again. This isn't like before in the days of Jonah where Assyria had a period of weakness and then rebounded even stronger than before. No. No, this time they are vanished from the face of the earth. You will no longer hear their messengers. But there is a message that you will hear of God's victory and the peace and peace for the people of God. My friends, it brings us right back to where we were last week, doesn't it? There is a gospel parallel here. Paul sees that clearly in Romans. The good news that is pictured in the days of Isaiah and Nahum is a good news that's pictured in the New Testament as well. God's victory and hope and peace for the people of God through what Christ alone can do. And so we have a message of good news and peace to bear as well. But it's prefigured even here in Nahum so long ago. But there's an accompanying message right with it, isn't there? A message of judgment. If there is peace and victory for the people of God, there is judgment and damnation for the enemies of God. That's something we can't run away from. It's in the scriptures from start to finish. There is a day of wrath reserved for the enemies of the people of God. It is part and parcel to the gospel. And so, my friends, there is a message here, I believe, a message of warning to recognize the wrath to come and flee from it. It's the message of Pilgrim's Progress, isn't it? Recognize the the wrath coming to the city of destruction and flee with all you have. Notice how powerful Nineveh was. And it says, though once it were a pool of water, now yet they flee. My friends, the message of the gospel is this. Flee to Christ. He is the only safe haven that can be found. Flee to Christ and live.